Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my wonderful co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Life is fleeting, all men die. That is true, and is especially true in the lands of Azeroth and Blizzard games. Everybody dies. In fact, we have an entire expansion coming up about the Land of the Dead. Go figure! Topical. Uh, today we're going to be answering your questions. Uh, we have a bunch of ones that we still have to get through uh, from the previous weeks. Thank you very much for sending those in. If you have questions for this podcast or the other podcast or the queue, uh, be sure to send them in. We do have several uh, question-focused channels on our Discord. We have one specifically set aside for patrons to give them a little bit of a bump. Uh, we also have one for non-patrons if you just want to ask questions for the queue or the podcast but can't necessarily support us on Patreon. Uh, otherwise, you can also send them to us at podcast at blizzardwatch.com where we will get the emails and then Matt and I will fight over them uh, like uh, trash bandits going through the garbage can looking for those last scraps of uh, last scraps of food. Without further ado, we're going to answer one question that technically has already been answered on the queue, uh, but I thought it might be an interesting discussion here as well. Uh, this is from our friend Eric. Uh, it's Hollow's End again. Now that Shadowlands is a thing, either remind me about the story of the Horseman or come up with your best idea of why the Headless Horseman didn't get judged by the Arbiter to go to one of the realms. Thanks. So you wrote a response to this already, right? Yep. That means I'm not doing it now. Go. <laughs> I thought it was interesting because there's a lot of... We've been talking about this particular concept a lot recently, which is can things in the realm of the Shadowlands, can they come back and manifest on Azeroth, and what does that mean? And from my perspective, we have uh, some, I don't want to say interesting implications, but it's one of those things where, like, there's, I, I, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it, like, it's almost like the veil is thin for certain souls, or for certain entities. It's not necessarily that they don't 
that they aren't judged uh, or anything like that, or they don't go to a specific realm, but in certain circumstances, they can cross back over. Uh, and we've seen that with uh, entities, you know, that are tied to the light, which we still don't know wholly what happened with Uther, but it's entirely possible that his manifestation is something along those lines. But I think uh, Vol'jin is another great example of that. He was sent back. Like, we don't know if the machine of death was broken when he went there uh, or if it was after. I don't think it was before. I think he was one of the last ones to really go that way, right? Because everything that happened afterwards was after he was already dead, all the Legion stuff. So he didn't, he got judged, or at least we can make the assumption that he did, but still wound up coming back. Uh, several of the Loa can still be spied on, even though they're dead. Uh, we can still communicate with some of them. We see that throughout Battle for Azeroth, if you play on the Horde side uh, and do a bunch of the Loa stuff, you can actually see that there are there is a way to communicate with them, whether it's through Bwam Samdi uh, or, you know, the various rituals and rites that are available. Uh, so it's an interesting concept. Do you, I guess I should say, what do you think is the most, I was trying to think of how to phrase this, I apologize. Do you think that there are other souls that have like sort of that weight that they, they can come back? And if so, why? I don't know if that's anything to do with this question because... I don't think he went anywhere. I don't. We know that when you die, you don't immediately go into the Shadowlands and get taken to the Arbiter, because we do it all the time. But aren't we being held in place by the uh, the Kyrian that decided to stay back? Isn't that isn't that established? Well, I mean, whether or not we are, I mean, the Kyrian have to find people. They don't just go to where they're supposed to go. Kyrian go and get them. Um, so at least some people don't go anywhere unless they're made to go somewhere. And I think in the case of Sir Thomas Thomason, uh, it's very much a case of he didn't get to go anywhere. Like if, if there was a Kyrian looking for him, it didn't find him because uh, Balnazar used his own blood to turn the guy into the headless horseman. And <clears throat> so I think it's not, a, it's not a case of I've got unfinished business or the light calls me back or what have you in this case. I definitely think it's much more of a case of huh, this guy is interestingly crazy. Let's see what he does if I make him a horrible monstrosity. Because we know necromancy has been a thing this whole time. Yeah. It, it's... And we know that there's there's ghosts all over the place. There was like, I don't remember, back in like vanilla, Varathen's ghost used to wander around in Ashara. And we didn't find out who Varathen was until much later. Varathen was the captain. He was in the, uh, he's in the uh, Well of Eternity novels, the War, the, the War of the Ancients novels. He was Ashara's captain of the guard. Uh, he was like... He pretend he acted like he felt nothing. He acted completely emotionless, but he was actually deeply, deeply in love with her, uh, and would do anything for her. And he presented that as an emotionless thing, like he didn't, he didn't display, and he didn't fawn over or anything like that. But no, he had it bad. Uh, he gets killed during the war because he doesn't, he won't betray Ashar no matter what. Um, and he ends up a ghost, and he's a ghost for ten thousand years. He doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't go to the Shadowlands. If he does go to the Shadowlands, it's like. He didn't go there very. Far. He didn't go very deep. So you know. So I guess that 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 raises another uh, question. Then how how do we think that that happens where they can't they're not found? Because like now I'm looking at like or thinking of like Najatar, right? Where well, there's a ton of highborn ghosts, like a lot of highborn ghosts. How was that never plucked or found or anything like that? Like, is there something the that keeps that, them veiled? The very fact that you need people to go and look for spirits implies to me that there is a not inconsiderable amount of people who don't get swept up and 
the more I look at the Shadowlands, the more it reminds me of when the Titans made the Elemental Realms. Like it feels like the first ones made the Shadowlands. Like that this is not the natural order of death. This is a creation. Mm-hmm. This is not. There doesn't need to be an arbiter or a jailer. These beings were put into place by by even more powerful beings that were effectively ordering death. To what end? I don't know. I don't know anything about it. It's, it's not really been established other than the first ones were involved. The ones who made the gate in the maw that leads out of the maw. The fact that the maw is supposed to be, you know, no one leaves the maw, no one gets out of the maw, but there's a first one's gate inside the maw. Yeah, I mean, that is that, that is an oddity, right? Like, if, if it's meant to be a prison where nothing escapes, why is the gate there? I mean, and obviously one of the reasons the gate might be there is because the first ones wanted a way out. Because, you know, they this was a place they made. They didn't want to get stuck in it. Or, you know, while you're making it, you do need a way to come and go from it. I don't know. But that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. We keep making the assumption that all of this stuff is permanent and unalterable and, like, all or nothing. Like, you know, this can't happen because of this. But it's very clear that the, the entire process is subject to stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't need Maldraxxus unless there's things from outside attempting to stop the thing you've set up. Like, you know what I mean? Maldraxxus is... For lack of a word, if you think of the, the Shadowlands as an organism, Maldraxxus is its immune system. You only need an immune system if it can fail. Do you know where I'm going with this? Like, I think. And we've we've seen that the light can attack Revendreth. We've seen like they, we talk about all the various. There's the the document that's supposedly from a, a possibly from a, a Nathrazim about infiltrating various other groups, which implies that those groups can and do come to the Shadowlands. Uh, the Legion is known. To the Shadowlands. We even see, like in in the uh, Draka Afterlife short, we see what looks an awful lot like they're fighting the Legion, which would imply that the Legion tried to come in. And it's like, is that you know, if necromancy exists, what is it if not you know raiding the larder? You know, you raise a whole bunch of zombies, you're kind of tam- you're, you're you're basically sh- giving a giant you know two fingers up to the very concept of you know getting going to the Shadowlands and you know being sorted by the Arbiter. Like, nope, I'm a lich. But you're supposed to be here. Nope, I'm a lich. I'm not going there. I'm Duh. staying here and doing Duh, stuff here. Like, so I feel like there's there's no immutability here. There's no these these systems feel ma- made. Not necessarily. I, I don't want to say man-made because no, obviously not. But but they feel made. They feel created. And as such, they can be flawed. Like we hear that Sire Denathrius was the first of the Venthyr, and we don't really know where he comes from. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we don't know where any of them really come from. Yeah, we, we know very little. We know this little reference to the first ones when you do the maw. So we know that these these first ones out there who clearly aren't any of these these beings, the Winter Queen, the, the Primus, uh, Sire, Denath- you know, Sire Denathrius, uh, the, the Archon. I think it's the Archon. I can't remember the name of the the, the, the Primus. Bastion one. Oh, the Bastion. No, yeah, the, the Archon. Or, yeah. or did the Primer, Primus. And then you've got the the Arbiter and the Jailer. Where do they come from? I don't know. Do they just come into existence? Were they created? It's clear that the Jailer has a life and something he did before he was the Jailer. He has a name, Zoval. And he's, his purple, his presence in the, in the Maw seems to be a punishment. So who punished him? Who put him there? Was it the first ones? Was it somebody else? Like there's, there's a lot we don't know. So the idea that it's possible that some people just don't get picked up because there's so many die. Like the the, the Shadowlands seem to be cross cosmos. Like there's like all there's people in various Shadowlands from worlds that are not Azeroth. Um, the first Night Warrior that we hear of, who's in the Shadowlands, 
is not from Azeroth. Yeah, and we encounter a bear spirit that is not from Azeroth. So, with that being the case, it would imply that a the, the here, here's another example. Outland would would nece- would you know ordinarily you would expect spirits to go to the Shadowlands before they got the, the entire place got pulled into the Nether, but we see that spirits were getting pulled to Ashagun and were basically healing Kure by being so drawn there, and they weren't getting to go to wherever they were supposed to go. Like those those various orc ancestor spirits were not leaving this this realm. So you know what? Let me ask you uh, uh, maybe a question uh, that that is because you you make me start thinking about something. We we keep talking about the machine of death being broken. So what that's if, the thing? That's why I'm objecting to that. But that's what right if there? But that's what I was gonna say is what if the machine of death being broken was the whole fact that the Shadowlands exist in the first place? Because it seems like they're you like you're, you're they're we're positing that there's this natural order to life and death inside of the universe before the first ones monkeyed with things, which is entirely possible. And we're talking about like with uh, Outlands and Draenor and and where they're going to Ashigan instead of wherever they're supposed to go. And we see that there's all these souls left behind because again, like you said, if if the Shadowlands was the default, then those souls should have had a different way to f- be ferried there instead of waiting for something to come pick them up. So the question is, is did the creation of Shad- the Shadowlands itself disrupt whatever the original machinery of death was? Is there something that 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 entire creation that because we like you said, this is something that was created. This was something that was instituted. Is that the point of disruption? Is that what what has been throwing all this into disarray from the very beginning is that you have this incredibly inefficient system which relies on beings to ferry souls into it from, as you said, multi-universal or or multi-world spanning uh, like reach, but all those things that get left behind, what does that mean? Does that mean that this being here has disrupted whatever the normal cosmic cycle is? Well, I mean, when you have a, a cosmos like the Warcraft universe, there may not be a natural cosmic anything before the Shadowlands. You can't assume that, well, before someone came along and made this, death worked this way. Maybe there was no death before this. Maybe nothing mortal existed. And in order for mortal things to exist, in order for death to exist, this had to be created. We don't know. And we keep trying to approach it like a puzzle, that if we just put down the right pieces, the whole thing will make sense. Things don't work that way. No, it's it's a little too obscure. I wouldn't say obscure. It's a little too abstract of a concept. Well, more importantly, it's think about like someone once made this point to me, like you know, people in fiction. Like I, I've been rereading Tarzan, but for a lot, a lot of reasons. One was I was just interested in seeing how it read to me as an adult, and who boy is it racist? But that's not the problem for this purpose. The 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 chains of coincidences necessary for Tarzan's life to exist are ridiculous. You read this book and you're like, wait, what? His cousin shows up mm-hmm. on the exact place he's been staying? Like, what? And it just goes from there. He becomes a secret agent at one point. Tarzan becomes a French spy in the second book. And my point is just the consistency of this does not have to be like it, it's human nature to want things to make it to, to form a completely consistent um, narrative. We, we want to look at it and understand exactly how it works and what the rules are. There might not be rules to this, at least not other than were imposed upon its creation. And clearly those rules can be broken because they are being broken. That is the whole, I think when we say the machinery of death is, is broken, we are repeating a phrase that got used as a throwaway in an interview. But 
when you want to really apply the concept, what's really happening here is the entire premise of Shadowlands is this guy is breaking the rules. And if we don't stop him, he will destroy everything to, to get what he wants. He does not care what happens. You know? And that's, that's, a, that's an idea that has a lot of real-world resonance right about now. But it's also an idea that if, if we keep trying to impose an outsider's view on it, rather than realize we are in it, our characters are in it. They are insiders. It's like that old saying, you can't explain a mathematical set without referencing information outside of the set. But you can't get outside of the set. You are part of this. You are part of the Shadowlands. So, I mean, we're playing mortal beings. So I think it's it's not a question of every time one every time we see a weird thing that seems like an exception, and we're like, how does that work? How do we? It, it, it doesn't work. That's the point. Is it supposed to work? Is it supposed to be perfect? I can't answer that question. Was was it wrong? Like maybe the Kyrian only exists because some souls naturally resist being guided to, into this into the Shadowlands. They don't want to go for whatever reason. Maybe they have a strong connection to the light. Maybe they just have unfinished business. Maybe they just plain don't want to die. And they're strong-willed enough that they can resist and they don't go unless someone comes to get them. I don't know. These are all possibilities. In terms of Thomas Thompson, what happened was Balnazar messed around with it. Which, based on what we now suspect might be the case between Balnazar and the various other Nathrazim and Sire Denathrius and that whole deal... It may not be surprising that it's the Nathrazim through which almost all of Legion's necromancy seems to come from. I mean, I can't think of anybody else who really does necromancy other than the Nathrazim. It seems to be their deal. Uh, that's very, very true. But I just thought it was an interesting discussion to have maybe about how we've been thinking about maybe this entire thing wrong. And I think that as we move forward and as we move through Shadowlands, that's something we should, as players, maybe keep in mind. That maybe our assumptions are just wildly incorrect. Um, our next question. Uh, Hello, Watchers. After watching the Bastion Afterlife short, we found out that Frostmourne could wound a soul like nothing else known. Death Knights reforged Frostmourne into the Twin Blades and Legion that we then used to fix the world soul. My question, how much do you think we screwed up? This is from Gling, a Death Knight who is very, very sorry. When did we use those swords to fix the world soul? We, yeah, I think what the the reference is is to taking the uh, bite out of Sargeras' sword because that's what we, we used them for. We, we drained the fell poison, yeah. quote unquote, from the sword. We never directly used the the artifact weapons on on Azeroth's soul. soul Azeroth. Yeah, so I, I mean, mean, for that matter, I mean, if somebody used uh, Naifu, so but they didn't use it on Azeroth the, the sword. So yeah, we haven't it's quite possible. Go ahead. I was just saying it was quite possible. They, they didn't, they never interacted with Azeroth as such. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the interesting part for me is that, that the weapons didn't directly interface with Azeroth soul. And even by the time we start really collecting like the blood of Azeroth, when we start dealing with the Azerite problem, these weapons are inert, right? Because they've they've consumed all of that fell energy from that piece of Sargeras that is just jammed into the side of the planet. Um, so I don't know how bad we messed up, but then we don't know how that weapon would potentially react with fell in general uh, because it really hasn't been something we've seen. 
we're probably going to find out a whole heck of a lot about it, though, uh, coming up in the next expansion because Maldraxxus is all about rune carving and rune smithing and what that means for runic weaponry and exactly what happens when energies are applied to it. Like, even in the introduction, as you make your way through it the first time, that's one of the first things that they sort of lay out for you is that there is an entire system. I guess you would call it in place that deals with those sort of runic weapons. Uh, but we find out more about them as we go through Maldraxxus as a zone. So in terms of how bad we messed up, no idea. Uh, we could not have messed up at all. It could literally be nothing. It could be something that, uh, because it's not really an energy that these items have been used to dealing with that. It just can't that it's inert now or it could wind up being something where we reawaken uh, a terrible power later on down the line we won't know until probably halfway through this expansion if we've made a mistake um, and again it also de depends on how closely tied this blade is the blade itself not the helm but the blade to uh you know the jailer or to the maw or any of that it may be it may play a factor later on but right now no idea probably Probably no more than we, we usually do, which is enough. <laughs> um, our next question. Dear Lore Masters, I am curious as to the state of past expansions after we are done with them. For example, after Burning Crusade, did all the Alliance and Horde just leave, or is there still a station of operations there? If so, what a crappy gig. Also, was it ever fully explained the transition from the end of Legion to the mindset of the demon hunter or to what the mindset of the demon hunters were? Or was it simply the demons are pacified? Let's go home to our original faction homes. Finally, if you could, can you tell me the difference in the level of evilness between the fell and the void shadow? Are they considered evil? Or are they just weapons to be used by either good or bad people? Thanks for all you do. Uh, Magi demon hunter. I guess we'll start with the first one. Uh, so what happens after we leave those areas? Do we do we have anything that states? And I think Burning Crusade is the one example. We have a garrison. Like, the Alliance keeps a garrison there still, even after the Dark Portal stuff. Well, I'm pretty sure both the Alliance and the Horde still have their bases in Hellfire. Yeah. I, I, and, the and Horde never references it, though, after after Burning Crusade, which is weird. I don't think there's much referencing an Alliance. I mean, Danath comes back. Uh, it's quite possible. Other, I mean, so does, uh, what's his name? The Wildhammer. Um, oh yeah, um, I, whoever fame. he is, yeah, he comes back. They they both come back. So it's quite possible that in the story of the game, everybody left. I don't know. I don't know what the current state of of Outland is. I don't. I don't know what it's like right now. Now that Illidan's no longer in charge of it, and the Shatrath is basically run by by Adal. Adal is obviously still around as of as of Wrath of the Lich King. Mm-hmm. Because we go to Adal and he helps uh, raise Crusader Brittenbrad directly into some kind of afterlife. Which, yeah, we're talking about Shadowlands, what's that? What happened there? How come you know the Light does not abandon his champions? Does that mean the Light basically just jumps into the queue and says, nope, got him, he's ours. He's not going wherever you want to put him. Yeah. Is there like a Light realm that, you know, the Light keeps its champions in? I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's very clearly very similar to what Odin was doing, where he would go, he would actually send Valkyr into the Shadowlands and pluck out the spirits. See, that's what gets me going. It's like, we keep talking about this, like, there's all these examples of other things. If if people just went straight to the Arbiter and got judged, then none of this stuff would work. Yeah. But obviously it does work. So, I don't, I don't know. But in terms of 
we don't know what's going on in in Outland right now. We we know that Thrall actually we know Thrall went there. Yeah. And spent some time living there. Yep. So very clearly there's people living there and they they are not they don't seem to be terribly concerned about like the legion or anything like that happening coming back. And Thrall's a farmer, uh, so we know that he's able to eke out at least some form of existence there where there was that uh fear that the land was dying beforehand. There seems to be some indication that potentially the land isn't necessarily as barren as it once was. Yeah, I mean for all that it's in the twisting nether, I mean it does seem to be you can grow food there. So yeah, I don't I don't know that we've ever actually had any sort of big ticket explanation of what's going on with Outland, but it definitely feels like it's still there and people still live there. Even and and it feels like since they've got like since the Alliance and Horde were surprised when the the portal turned red and they couldn't use it to go to Outland anymore, I feel like that suggests they were using it to go to Outland. Yeah, and that, uh, the the interesting thing for me about this particular question, or at least this particular part of this question, is that they we don't spend a lot of time in-game talking about what we do after we leave zones. And I always found that fascinating. Like, we know that there's still bases in Northrend. Uh, we know that there at least is some presence still in Warlords, uh, in, in not Warlords of Draenor, but... Um, in uh, Outland because of exactly what you just laid out there. Uh, however, the, the other interesting thing for me is the one that we do know at least what happens is Warlords of Draenor because we're specifically shown a world in which we pulled completely out. Like, yeah. we're, we're gone. That That's the only one we have verification that we have, we have left. There is nothing left behind. Not only did we leave, but that was 30 years ago from their perspective. Yeah. To us, it was a couple months to a couple years at this point, but to them, it was 30 plus years ago. Yeah, 30 plus like years we, that we abandoned them. We finished up and said, we got to get back to our deal and left. Um, although, I'll tell you right now, one of my Draenei stayed and just lived in his garrison until he died. I left him there. So I assume that he got killed whenever what was going on between the uh, the various Maghar and the uh, Light Bound or whatever they were called started up. He probably got himself killed. But he was retired. I retired him there. But he would have been retired inside for practically an empty building, mm-hmm. you know. But that's interesting too because if you think about Pandaria, we know what happened in Pandaria because we went back. Yeah, and and we know that the Alliance and Horde basically left, and they kept like they Token kept the forces, shrines. Right? Yeah, yeah, they they basically kept the shrines, and that was it. And we that's- had and maybe some emissaries that dealt with like the Shadow Pan, but that's about it. Yeah, there wasn't much like the the various other places that had horde or alliance presence didn't. Which plus, if you think about it, other than the shrines, the horde and alliance after Jade Forest, they didn't build settlements anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, the only the only other like they had the bases in Krasarang because that's where the you know the horde and alliance forces both rolled up onto the shore and built bases. But aside from those, and aside from the Jade Forest places that got wrecked, they did. There wasn't a ton of alliance presence in Pandaria or Horde presence, sorry, in Pandaria in the first place. So yeah, it was pretty easy for them to pull out. And it definitely feels like Northrend felt like we pulled out and it felt like not just us, the, you know, Dalaran moved. Yeah. Dalaran's gone. Like that presence is just gone. Like it, yeah. it, it moved for a very specific reason. And what's really funny about that is it didn't even go that far. No, but it's enough to make a difference. No, but it's like, if you think about it, Northrend is just to the North of the broken isles. Like they're right there. If, if, if you go from, Howling Fjord, and you go straight south, you run into Stormheim. Mm-hmm. And it's even like what happened. Like, 
these these when the before the before the sundering these places people walked from like people walked from what's now Northrend to what's now the Eastern Kingdoms. That's how humans got to the Eastern Kingdoms. They they walked there when they were Vrykul still. They walked there along with like a bunch of like the already Curse of Flesh affected Vrykul along with Tyr and Iranaya and Arcadis just walked south to get away from Loken. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interesting stuff about that. But in terms of all these places, it does feel like we do pull out. Uh, Cataclysm is the one example where we didn't really. Well, yeah, but because we didn't, we didn't have bases. Yeah, that we were just kind of dealing with the aftermath of, of what was happening in our main lands, right? No, but I'm talking about like uh, Deep Home or uh, the Twilight Highlands or what have you. Like the Twilight Highlands is a really interesting case because the Horde made new allies there, and those allies turned on them pretty damn quickly. Oh yeah, no. That I mean, when you go back, even like as you take the portal now as Horde, which I I find this always fascinating. The person that greets you literally says, "Get out of here before they notice, or it'll be my head." Like because they're no longer our allies. Like it, it is, it is incredibly fascinating to see how that works. And I think the only ones that are still present there, which I mean, even then, like story wise, I think they've pulled back right because the Wildhammer, like their settlements that are there were all sort of ruined, and I think they kind of came back to Ironforge at this point, didn't they? No, no. They, they, the, the Alliance, it's really weird if you actually think about it. In all these places where the Horde and Alliance had conflict from Cataclysm on, the Alliance wins. Yeah. The Alliance, get, the Wildhammers get their stuff straightened out, deal with the old gods, and, you know, beat the, beat the Horde and the Dragonmaw. It's like straight up what, it's the story. You win. The Horde has lost Every time it's provoked a land war with the Alliance, it has lost it. Except for Warcraft 1. That's the only time the Horde successfully defeated the Alliance in a land conflict. I mean, they did a really good job, and they've blown up a lot of cities since, but they never actually come out of it having gained a lot. I was actually hoping, I mean, you kind of got that from Sarfang a little bit, that concept of, you know, what, what is this for? What, why are we doing this? It's just going to end the same way it always does. And I was actually very hopeful, and, and I don't know if we'll see anything for that. Shadowlands seems like it's going to be not about that sort of thing, but I would like to see a little movement of the story where it's like the Horde has finally learned this doesn't benefit us. We we, we, we get a lot of people killed and it doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah. Um, the other parts of, of our, our friend Medjai's questions, though, I don't want to ignore them. Um the demon hunters returning back to their homeland. I couldn't tell you, man. We, there's nothing as good as mine. Nothing's been said about that. Like we don't I have mean, any context for it, right? Illidan, Illidan went and got himself in a permanent punching match with Sargeras, and so I don't even know if the demon hunters know what happened. Like the ship comes back, and the demon hunters are like, "Well," and and uh, you know, um, Velen has to turn up Kane Sunfair and be like, "Uh, yeah, he's not coming back." What do you mean he's not coming back? He sort of stuck himself inside of a pocket universe to punch Sargeras in the face forever to keep the demons at bay. So that's where he is. So we just got the head of the order back and now you've lost him forever. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that, though, too, is like the whole demon hunter story, like you, the the people that go or went to Illidan to become demon hunters lost everything. They didn't have anything to go back to. They had no lives. Yeah. It's very much, I, I don't think it's necessarily the, the thing about the demons are pacified. Let's go home to our original faction homes. In many cases for, for the blood elves that became demon hunters, they weren't in the horde in the first place. Yeah. This is before, this is before that ever happened. 
technically. They were they were Kael'thas's direct followers that he gave to Illidan to become demon hunters. Yeah. Like he basically he said these these people are broken and worthless to me. They they've lost everything. See what you can do with them. And the, they're like they stayed loyal to Illidan after it was revealed what Kael'thas had done. They were like no, f that. Uh, we, you know, we're here to kill demons, not to work with them. And yeah, so they didn't have a whole like go, them going back to the horde. It doesn't feel like they went back to the horde. It feels like they went back to Quelthalos. And since Quelthalos is currently a, a horde member, they ended up in the horde. But there's a lot of. It doesn't feel like they really went back to their original faction so much as they just went anywhere they could. And it yeah. doesn't feel. It feels like to me, like I always thought about it. Like you can't say that it feels like they'd be over it. Like, you know, you lose everything and then you give up what little you had left for vengeance. Does getting vengeance fix it? Like, do, do you consider them to have even gotten vengeance? Is this, is Legion revenge? Like, if you look at what actually happened, did, did they get revenge? No, I don't think so. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what they're up to. I honestly, I've written a couple of, of character profiles for people who played Demon Hunters in Battle for Azeroth. And I approached it differently based on what they told me they wanted their character to be doing. But I remember like one time I was just like, he went, the, the one that I remember most closely, he basically became a demon hunter because his entire family was killed. Yeah. And then he comes home and what happens? Like his people have started this tree that he'd never heard of. Like he never would have heard about Teldrassil. It was, you know, he was from Warcraft 3. So he went off to, to Outland with Illidan in Warcraft 3. He, he joined up then. He, he there's no, he was no way he would know about Teldrassil. He comes back and it's already been burned down and like a whole bunch of his people are dead. Like it just, this is, we just confirm his worldview. This is what life is like. So yeah, I don't, I think that's a person by person thing. I don't, I don't think there's any sort of organizational answer to that question. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what it's meant to be. Although it would be nice if there was ever something that would officially deal with, this is some of the aftermath. Uh, but I don't know if we'll ever officially get anything. I think otherwise it's going to be up to you to decide what your character went through as far as discovering where your home was after the events of it. Uh, and then the last question that you had asked us, Majai, was the difference between the evilness of fell and void slash shadow. Um, so vo fell is one of those things where uh, it is a destructive form of magic, uh, which I think was first encountered by use with demons. Uh, it's entro it's entropic, it's chaotic, it's extremely volatile. Uh, it taints its wielder. Uh, so even if you have the best of intentions, but you wield fell, it will corrupt you in some way shape or form uh and it is very much assumed in the context of world of warcraft to be an evil source um whether or not you view it as evil i think depends on your personal sort of limits but it is the destruction of uh, it's basically when light and dark meet and like souls get destroyed fells created it's it's bad stuff. It is not meant to be, you know, a light thing. Uh, as far as void and shadow, Matt. Uh, void and shadow are more. Evil. They're more evil. I'm just. I'm just. Sure. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's fair to call the void evil as so much as it is just inimical to us. Mm -hmm. It's like a volcano erupting with lava spewing out of it isn't evil, but it will kill you if you stand in it. It doesn't matter that it, it doesn't wish harm upon you. But it's it's inimical to you. Cannot survive it. In that way, the void and the shadow. Well, hold on. Here, can you hear these sirens? A little bit. It's fine. Yeah. 
Uh, I guess the, the fell police are coming to get the, the, oh, the, the, the fell police. You say the void's more evil. They're coming to take you away to Mardoom. Yeah, but but at any rate, the void is light isn't good and fell isn't. I mean, void isn't evil, but light is something that makes our existence. It's 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 not. It can destroy you. Like you can burn something to death with light. You can sear it, you know, to ash. You can blind it. The light can be painful and and awful, but it it's something we generally depend upon and rely upon. Darkness can benefit you. You can hide in it. You know, you can keep cool in it. You you know, there's there's good things about it, but it's also somewhat inimical to you. It allows predators can also hide in it. I don't think that it's fair to. These are metaphorical constructs that are not the same thing as a dark room or a bright day, but they have that kind of charge to them. You know, they, they, the light reveals things that the shadow conceals them. Uh, if that makes sense. One of the reasons that you can have like the, the concept of the thousand truths that the void Lords and their, their old God puppets can, can manifest is because all things are possible when you have no idea what's true. When everything is concealed, it could be anything because you don't know what it is. The light, no, it's this thing because I'm showing you this is what it is. Look, I'm I'm illuminating it by by existing. The light reduces possibilities because it illuminates shadow conceals and hides. But that also means more things are possible. You don't know what's true. So you can try various things. I don't think it's fair to call either of them good or evil. And it's not really fair to call fell evil because fell isn't fell is more. It's it's more that it's rampantly destructive. Yeah. Yeah, I think and, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, and they talk about how arcane is an orderly magic and fell is a chaotic magic, and they're kind of the opposites of each other. Um, in a way, arcane is when you get light and, and void meeting. When you have all the possibilities of, of shadow and all the, the illumination of, of light, that's kind of what arcane is like. It's kind of like the both of them at once, the, the best of them. Fell is like the worst of them. The searing raw power of the light, the corruption and degradation of the void. Um, they're... They're kind of like reflections of each other. I don't think it's fair to, to pick one out and say this one is more evil than this one. It really comes down to the problem with us is that we are not by nature, we are not comfortable in either unvarnished truth or complete and total possibility. We need stricture and we need an idea of what, what's really going on, but we are not great at dealing with uncomfortable truths. Yeah. Just look at real life. And that's that's kind of the way that light and, vo and void work in Warcraft, too too much truth is destructive because you can't bear it. It's like, you know, one could make the case that Sylvanas broke because she just kept seeing horrible things happen. And those things were true. They were happening. So I don't know. I don't think either is quote unquote evil as such, but I definitely think that fell is absolutely destructive to life. Yeah. Whereas uh, it, ruin, it ruins planets. Whereas the void, the void breaks your mind in a way that the fell doesn't. There's nothing about the fell that is, it doesn't really cause insanity. It just causes decay and death and rot and, and mutation. Whereas the void can do those kind of things, but they can also, it also plays on the mind because anything's possible when you don't know what's real. Yeah. Just look, just look at our, our wonderful little void elves to, to get a, a glimpse of some of the uh, internal discussions the void has with your brain on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think, I think maybe that is fair that, that it's not necessarily that they're evil. It's just the varying degrees of destruction. Uh, but I also don't think that it's necessarily that they're good uh, in terms of, you know, Oh, it's just the tool to be used uh, because that tool has one heck of a kickback. Yeah, I mean, it, it may be fair to say it's just a tool to be used, but think about if you have a sledgehammer. You do not use a sledgehammer for everything. 
sure, it's a tool to be used, but when it is the only tool you have, you start, you know, if you just wander around your house fixing every problem you have with a sledgehammer, soon all your stuff will be broken. Yep. Um, if you go around your house trying to fix every problem you have with a, with a circular saw, soon all your stuff will be cut up. Uh, and the problem with these things is they're, I mean, for that matter, if you really want to talk about it, a howitzer is a tool. I don't use a howitzer to kill bugs because then my house will be gone. Fell is extremely destructive. It's one of the things that Illidan realized, even as he switched to it, was that, you know, he didn't know how to control it properly. And it ended up killing, you know, he ended up killing multiple of his own followers back when he was still trying to figure it out. So our next question comes from Locutus. Uh, not a Borg, but a bald mechanome warrior from uh, USC Sarah. Uh, what Easter egg ha- that you found in Battle for Azeroth do you think may pan out to be foreshadowing for stories in Shadowlands? An example I found is a reference to the Loa Dumbala on the mission table. His blessing is one of the two abilities that Taijin has available. The other is a blessing of Luko. Uh, both Dambala and Luko are references to actual Loa and Haitian voodoo, Dambala and Loko, uh, respectively. Dambala is a snake-like being. I visualize him as a wind serpent and creator of the universe, and Loko is a patron of healers and trees. Additionally, both, I believe, appear in the non-canon Warcraft RPG as Loa revered by the Darkspear, especially by the Shadowhunters, such as Taijin. Considering how important these Loa are in voodoo, especially Dambala, finding a reference to Dambala in-game was intriguing. This is made even more so because Dambala, along with Car are apparently taken by Moizala in Shadowland. This could lead to some interesting stories with Akar, rather wind serpent-like, and Dumbala. All this possible storytelling was set up by Blizzard with a small reference on their old, oft-overlooked mission table. Uh, Dumbala, yeah, that, I thought that was an interesting reference because I remember that from the RPG, um, and this is something I talk about a lot on both podcasts. Uh, it's interesting to see what they're actually picking and choosing from it to bring into canon. Um, but yeah, Dumbala was always interesting because that was uh, the Loa that taught the shadow hunters how to shadow walk. Like that was the Loa that, that was the, for lack of a better term, the patron saint of shadow hunters. Uh, and I find that very, very interesting that we would find a reference to Dumbala in battle for Azeroth before the expansion, in which we go to the Shadowlands which is, I believe, originally what uh, Shadowhunters were said to travel way, 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 way back when, when Shadowhunters were still in Warcraft 3. Uh, I believe references in the manual to them as the hero class were that the Shadow Walk ability uh, basically let them go through, essentially, the Shadowlands uh, from point A to point B to, to, work, uh, to walk on detective, which always fascinated me because it, I'm not going to call it a retcon, but I think it's something that, that has been not fully explored and i think we might get some more information about that going into shadowlands which to me is super cool uh because i like learning about loa in particular because there's so many of them revered by so many different clans of trolls that i'd love to see some more explanation to how shadow hunters work i'd like to see some more explanation to how the process of loa's work uh what their sort of domains are because we've encountered wild gods we've interacted with wild gods we've interacted with some loa but i'd like more in that i like troll culture when we're not just going through a dungeon uh killing them because i think there's you know more to it than just hey they they took our presidents here let's go kill them and then you know stop hagar from being summoned but yeah i can't think of any other like obvious 
maybe Easter eggs that I found in Battle for Azeroth. Did you find any that you really like that you picked up on that might have future uh, sort of importance? Well, this one's not really fair because I know for a fact it has future importance and I know that they're coming back. But when the Drust were first in announced in Battle for Azeroth, I remember the first thing I said before we even got anything to do with them was that they're the Vrykul. These guys are like Vrykul. And this, all this death stuff that they're talking about and the death druidism that they're kind of bringing to the, you know, the Kul'tiran druids are using Drust druidic magic. They're they're even taught by a Drust thornspeaker. Um, he's still alive. He's like the last one. And that to me was like, okay, what? Why does why is this here? Like, what does this have? To, like, throws the, the you know the, the blighted land they come from. The the way that they've pulled their spirits out of their bodies and are basically reincarnating them into these like construct forms the wicker and stone bodies the giant wicker men and so forth all that stuff what does it have to do with anything and it's interesting to me that Colteris is literally on the path between uh northrend and the eastern kingdoms it's like uh, if you were sailing from one to the other you would stop first in the blasted lands not the blasted lands the uh broken isles and then you'd stop on Colteris. that would be your next stop before you actually sailed over to the mainland um and it's one of those things I kept thinking about. And then I made a comment to the effect of, yeah, the next expansion is going to be a lot more about death. And I think, uh, I think it was Steve Danuser actually who like, I remember he'd like said something effect of you just watch, you'll see what's going on. And it obviously has all turned out to be the case. The Drust are going to be, you know, the Drust are coming back in Shadowlands. They're, they're a big part of the Ashen. Ardenweald. Ashen Ardenweald. Yeah. The big part of Ardenweald. And it's very much the, the, their story is about how they're trying to subvert Ardenweald to get themselves actually reborn into the world. Because by pulling their spirits out of their bodies, they've effectively made themselves into like these undead things. They're like trapped in construct form. They've kind of like done sort of like what the. Uh, they're like Forsaken, Mogu but did. worse. They're like Forsaken Mogu. Yeah. Where like the Mogu, you know, were another Titan Forge group that found a way to, you know, undo the curse of flesh. Rather than undoing it, they basically pulled themselves out of their flesh bodies and jammed themselves into constructs again. But the constructs are like blighted and they don't really have life. They're essentially like revenants. And the revenant, which is something we saw going back to Warcraft 3. Remember the revenant in Frostmourne Cavern? Yep. We see What do we see when we're like looking around uh, Arden, no, not Arden Stand? What is the name of that? Let me, Aaron Stand in Drusvar. Uh, is we see revenants just like the ones we see in Northrend. And I think that that whole idea of taking your spirit out of your body and putting it into like an elemental construct, that's, that's what a Revenant is. So all the way back to Warcraft three, we've had these things kind of popping up and now we're going to finally get to see their end game, which is that they go to Ardenweald and they try to use the cycle in Ardenweald to rebirth themselves into the world. Uh, that's what their goal is. That's why they're attacking. So I, I saw that coming all the way back and I made the comment. I think it was like right after I'd first done the, uh, you had to do mythic uh, Boralus. I forget Siege of Boralus. You had to do mythic Siege of Boralus to see the end of the Jaina storyline. There's like a cinematic that you had to go and do Siege of Boralus to see the whole thing. You know, to, to finish the quest line, you had to do it. And as soon as I did that and I watched it and I thought, oh, this this is important. And I mean, the, the actual end of this Siege of Boralus cinematic has nothing to do with any of this. It's Jaina using the old Kul uh, amulet to pull the Colteran fleet back from wherever they ended up getting stranded. And someday I'm going to understand how that happened. Like, what did Ashara do and how did she do it? Did she use the Tidestone to do that? 
Like, yeah. how did she banish the whole fleet? But I think this stuff is more tied together than we think. Like, the whole idea of Kul'Tiris and Kul'Tiran magic and the nation of Kul'Tiris was set, you know, it's built on the back of the Drust. And I think that, you know, the fact that the Drust were up to some really hinky stuff is going to be a big deal, not just in Shadowlands, but beyond it. I think that might connect into more in the future. Like, do the Titans and the, you know, various beings that we're seeing in Shadowlands, do they descend from the first ones? Are the first ones effectively like some kind of progenitor god race? Uh, does the light and, you know, do, are there beings in the light? And besides, you know, we know that the Void Lords exist. Are there beings in the light that act like that? You know, what, what's going on there? But I do, I remember keep every time I looked at the Drust, I'm like, there's something here. There's something about this. Because they tap in, they even touch on the things. There's that one little bit where your Death Knight finds a dragon in Drustvar, and she's like, get away from, you know, no, you're not, I'm not going to let you resurrect this, uh, this dragon as a mount after what you did. And it's a cute little, it's got nothing to do with what's going on in Shadowlands, but it's a cute little callback to what your Death Knight did at the end of Legion when you attacked the uh, Ruby Dragon Shrine. Yep. So, but I definitely think for me it was the Drust. I mean, and there may be other things that we have missed because admittedly, as much as we go through all the fine details of the game. I'm going to just straight up say, forget may have, there is. There, there has to be. stuff we've missed. Yeah. There's always going to be too much for just, you know, are two little sets of eyes to to catch or catch wind of. So if you have a uh, Easter egg or reference that you think is important and you're listening to this, let us know. Uh, toss it into Discord or send an email in letting us know what your discovery is. Maybe we can do an entire episode about what potential uh, Easter eggs will mean for the future. Uh, so send them in. Let us know because I'd like to know what I missed personally. Uh, our next question uh, in the spirit of Halzen, questing through Northrun raised a couple of questions. How much non-skeletal structure does the body need to have to be raised as a Forsaken? You bring back the skeletal remains of a spirit walker and the shaman quest giver uses ancestral spirit to bring them back to life full body from skeletal remains although this may be a game icon inventory issue but that's how it's represented this would seem to indicate that you don't need the flesh and organs to raise someone to life but while you are attacking the scarlet onslaught you're given a cage of rats to consume the body after killing members of the onslaught to keep their priests from raising them do shaman return people to life differently than priest paladins or is this all about shoving the spirit back into the vessel it came from that's a complicated question that I don't think has ever been really fully addressed. Uh, I'm going to straight up say the first part is just they don't want to actually show you lugging a body around. Yeah, I, uh, that, that's, that's going to be guaranteed part of it. But I think some of it is possibly how uh, the relation of the various paladins and priests and monks and shaman and druids how they all interact with magic in particular with spirit and we've talked about this on uh this show and the regular show uh, a bit where shaman have they they revere spirit as the fifth element they revere it as the the one that ties everything together they have a more intricate relationship i feel with spirit than almost any other healing class i think except for monks um and i think that there is a certain amount of that that goes into the the story behind their abilities uh in their particular case the the uh what i think is ancestral uh why can't I think of the name of the spell now? Ancestral Spirit is the uh, the name of the ability. Uh, it is shoving the spirit of the deceased back into a body, but it's interesting because 
their relationship with the elements and what a what a quote-unquote body is is a construction of the elements it almost feels like shaman don't necessarily need a complete body to to resurrect somebody because for lack of a better term they could call upon uh essentially the powers of creation to a certain extent to sort of fill that in that's not saying that the other ones can't but to me it makes the most amount of sense because you know they can call upon the elements of air fire water earth and spirit to reshape a vessel if necessary. And since we are all technically constructs from the very beginning, it makes a little bit more sense to me in that regard. Uh, what do you think, man? I think you've been watching too much Captain Planet and going, yeah, shaman are good. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I always go, yeah, shaman are good. But yeah, I, don't, you- I, I think it's a game icon inventory. I think that the game is pretty strict on the concept of once the corpse is destroyed to a certain point, you can't raise it anymore. I also think there's a difference between raising and what the Forsaken are. Forsaken aren't raised. They don't come back. There's a big difference between being a living person and being a Forsaken. Uh, A Forsaken is a rotting mockery of a living thing that is constantly deteriorating, that can repair itself by effectively, you know, putting more flesh on itself in a piecemeal way. Oh, your jaw fell off? Well, we'll just staple a new one on. They're not alive. So... I think you definitely need less structure to come back as a Forsaken because the Forsaken can be rotting corpses. That's fine. It yeah. works. Or the evil, you know, I don't want to say evil because it's necromancy, but the magic of the necromantic magic of the of the Plague of Undeath and the, the Valkyr who are, who are helping raise the dead here very clearly don't care if the body is intact. I mean, the heart doesn't have to be working. Blood doesn't have to be pumping. I mean, look at look at all they're, the scourge zombies and everything that were around beforehand. They weren't exactly like that became the Forsaken. They weren't they weren't exactly full meat suits at that point. They're dead. That's the whole point. They're dead. So it doesn't require a you know the Scarlet Onslaught was presumably not going to raise their people as undead. They weren't going to death knight it. They weren't going to just you know well those guys died they get they now they get up and they're zombies. Go attack that guy. Like you know. When you cast Army of the Dead as a Death Knight, you're not raising people. Whereas you can raise people as a Death Knight. You can raise people from the dead. Um, it's the combat res, but you do have that spell. Mm-hmm. So for all that you're not like a healer, you're not healing anybody. But a Death Knight can basically grab the ghost and say, no, get back in there. And like with a bloom of power, basically yank them up. And now they're not dead. They're physically alive. What's that all about? It's not like... It's not even said the the spell's wording doesn't say that you know you know you temporarily raise them as an undead ally or anything. They're alive. You you made them get up. Yep. So how'd that work? Since you can't heal people, how did you do it? Like what you know I I can't really answer that question. Although I think it's very much a case of they come back and they're not exactly doing great, and then somebody else heals them more effectively. Uh, but I definitely think if, when we're dealing with stuff like this, uh, you got to remember the Forsaken are not living things. So. You can, you can, I mean, I don't know if they've changed it now. So you can actually have more skin on your forsaken than used to, right? Yeah. You can look, you can look a lot cleaner. Yeah. Back in the day. I mean, I didn't know a forsaken whose elbows and knees weren't gone. You know, they just, yeah. Shoulders, elbows, knees, hips. Those bones just were exposed. So clearly you didn't need all of it. And the forsaken, you know, there was that bit in before the storm where they talk about how, you know, as things fall apart, they, they have to go to other bodies and, get replacement parts and wedge them onto the body. I mean, just, just look at the, what is it? Dark mirror, the whole, the whole Nathanos thing to begin with. Like he was rotting and falling apart. 
like his body was failing him. <laughs> that that was part of the whole thing of that story. Like I I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about uh, because there is definitely a distinction between resurrecting somebody fully and being and, raised and look, as forsaken. Like look at the fact that in in story sometimes it's like the game doesn't want to admit. It's like the game has the resurrection spells and spirit healers. A lot of times WoW fiction doesn't seem to want to admit that those things exist. Yeah. I remember the Cataclysm story. I can't remember its name, but the one with Anduin and his father where Varian dies, but Anduin is super quick. And he's like, I healed him on the edge of death. He's like, did you, or was he dead? You know, Sylvanas dies in Cataclysm. She doesn't get really badly hurt and then healed up. No, she's she dead. Dies. They kill her. One of the Valkyr has to sacrifice itself to get her back up. And how the Valkyr res Sylvanas, but she's still undead. Think about that. She was a Forsaken. And she was undead. I don't even know if you call her a Forsaken because she was a Banshee that went and found her own body and put herself back in it. Nobody did that for her. She went and found it. Yeah, no, that's true. And jammed herself back in there. And then uh, Godfrey kills her. He, sh- he straight up shoots her in the back and kills her. And then she's brought back. So she's, she's raised back into undeath. We have a lot of hinkiness to how these spells work and whether or not they they work like they don't work reliably like i don't know if you guys remember this but there was a blood elf quest if you were a blood elf paladin there was a quest where you had to go siphon power from muru and then go find a dead guy and use that power to raise him and you know how you know he was dead long enough for you to get the job to go drain the magic out of anaru and then go raise him with it mm-hmm. i mean how long was that clearly he didn't get too nibbled on in that time so yeah, it's just I don't I don't have an answer there, to the question. Yeah, it's it's, it's another instance of the game and the the, the story of the game kind of not aligning because of mechanics. And there, there's sh- it's interesting because I think Shadowlands is actually trying to treat all that stuff. I think so too. Like it's actual in-game canon lore, and that's the first time they've tried to be consistent with, it, which means it's kind of confusing at times because we have 16 years of it not being very consistent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we should mention this is the 16th anniversary of, of World of Warcraft. Today has started. They've started the the celebration. That so, is that yeah. is correct. Yeah, 16 years of this, guys. Stuff piles up. Yeah, and I think that uh, I think you're right on. I think you're onto something where I think Shadowlands will start to answer maybe some of these questions. Uh, it may not be the cleanest to get there, but I think we'll get there at some point. And I think we have time for one more before we'll call it good for today. Uh, this one, next one comes from Talvi. Uh, hello there. This, this is a question for Lorewatch. With the onset of the new expansion and the current non-existent continuation of the Night Elf storyline, could we say that Shandris Feathermoon is being primed as the next racial leader of the Night Elves? What are your opinions on this? Many thanks, Talvi. Uh, it's I Night, Elf. it's Night Elves. Let you go, man. I don't know if it's if she's being primed for it. I think it would be good if she was. Um, I Quite frankly, I think Taranda should not be the leader of the Night Elves. I agree. Uh, partially because this is not that I don't like Tyrande as a character. I do like Tyrande as a character. And I think being the leader of the Night Elves has made it so she's constantly in a position of having to fight between her religious responsibilities, her personal responsibilities, and her responsibilities to her people. And while I kind of blame Malfurion more for this than I do her, she's kind of let her people... She hasn't served them all of her masters as well as she should have. And I think it would be good if the Night Elves had a separation where Chandris did the day-to-day leadership of her people. I, and the reason for that is because the, it really came down to me in Cataclysm when the Horde basically firebombed Stranar. Unprovoked. 
there's no justification for this. The Horde decided we're going to take Ashen Vale just because we want Ashen. We want more trees. So under Garage Hellstream, they completely slaughter everybody at Silverwind Refuge. If you're a Horde player and you go to do quests and you fly into Silverwind Refuge, at least back in Cataclysm, you were standing on Night Elf bodies. Yeah. They were right there on the ground under your feet. Yep. Um, and they, they're literally firebombing Astranar. And Taranda's response to it is a non-response. The, the, the Night Elves and the Alliance don't do much of anything. And part of that is because, of course, you know, the Cataclysm is happening at the exact same time and, like, Hygel's under attack. And you even hear from Ashara, of all people, that she's taking part in what's going on in Darkshore to distract Malfurion from Hygel, to pull his attention away. <sighs> but it meant that, ultimately, the Night Elves just kept not responding. Like... The Horde would firebomb one of their civil their cities, and then meanwhile the Horde and Alliance are both up in Hyjal, pretty as you please. No consequences. And uh, the only consequence is that Hamul Rune Totem gets burned up. Yeah. And granted, he deserved it, uh, because the woman who burned him up lost her child to the Horde firebombing. They burned his, her child to death while she was sleeping. Um, and she was... The weird thing about it was it was Fandral Staghelm's daughter-in-law. Sorry. It was his granddaughter who died. It was his daughter-in-law who who joined the Druids of the Flame along with him. It's just one of many incidences where, like, throughout the story, it wasn't that the Horde attacked that was the problem. It was a lack of response. It was that the Alliance never did anything, especially the Night Elves. Never did anything. And then we finally got the burning of Teldrassil, and it's like, wow, Teldrassil, suddenly I'm Russian. <laughs> we got the burning of Teldrassil, and it was very much more of the same, to the point where, like, you go in as a Horde player, and you murder everybody in Estranar. You, you you stalk in and poison them to death again. And then you march up. You march all the way through, you know, Ashenvale. And then you go all the way through Darkshore. And it's like, again, because, you know, Toronto and, and Malfurion weren't really focused. And what happens? Malfurion confronts them. And you think, oh, wow, this is going to be really cool. And then he gets shot in the back. And he doesn't stop it. And then Taronda doesn't attack she grabs Malfurion and leaves and evacuates. And it feels bad. And I think that, you know, I like a lot of what happened with Taronda afterwards. I like that she became the Night Warrior. I like that she reattacked. although I don't like that it basically feels like the, the Horde basically just walks away with, like, what? She she gets to kill one Valkyr? But, no, it just it's felt for years like they don't know what to do with Taronda. Yeah, and I think along that same line not to not to interrupt the train of thought but it's it's one of those things where i think chandris has been getting sort of the development to be the type of leader that Tehran never got to be like if you look at uh shadows rising you look at the stuff that happens you know in battle for azeroth that involves anything with chandris feathermoon she's gone from this sort of rage consumed creature which we, we were first introduced to her way back when she sort of evolved into something somebody who's more thoughtful, who's more uh, present for the needs of the people. And she even presents her arguments in, in sort of that light too, right? Like it's, you know, she's, yes, yeah, she's worried about her friend and, and family and, and everything else, but it's, is this going to be the best for our people? Is, are the decisions we are making going to come back to haunt us? Is there, you know, what are we doing? Are we making the right choices? And she seems to be being positioned to be that person once Tarand is done, regardless of what that looks like. Regardless. I mean, yeah, I, one of the things I wanted to point out since you, made, since you brought that up, 
you see Chandris in the Alliance War campaign. She's the fi- she's the main Night Owl figure that you interface with. She's the one leading the Night Owl forces in the war camp. Mm-hmm. And when when Taronda basically tells Anduin to eat it, which I am totally on board with, by the way, I totally back her on that. But when Chandris when when Chandris is there and Taronda basically tells Anduin, I'm not signing anything. Taronda's one like Chandris was like, you know, they took our people in. I I get that you're angry, and I don't disagree with you that you should be angry but these are our allies we don't have to alienate them right now and even even though Chandris is the one who comes Chandris and Maya are the ones who go to Anduin and say look she's gone to take Darkshore back we need your help and he says no and they're like fine we'll do it without you she's just as much there she doesn't stick around with the alliance she, she doesn't abandon them I mean her people she goes and fights in Darkshore but she still takes part in the alliance operations I feel like there's a, for lack of a better word, Chandris has grown up to be dispassionate as a commander because she has been a military commander for 10,000 years. And you see that when she's talking to Keishan of all things. And he's like, you know, you know who I am? And she goes, yeah, you're not the only one who gets access to the Alliance files. And he goes, well, I can't imagine that someone who's been fighting for 10,000 years would pay any attention. He goes, she goes, you fought in the, in, you fought in the, the, in the first and second. I, your, your contribution isn't less valuable just because you've been doing it for less time. She, she's good at thinking in, a, in the scale of the other races. She's good yes. at, you know. Yes. She can reach out to them in a way that Taronda can't. Taronda has, you, Taronda says this. In Warcraft 3, she says, you don't know what it's like. She says it to Malfurion when he questions her. He's like, you've changed. You've gotten harder. She goes, I've had to sit here for 10,000 years and keep it all together while you slept. Mm-hmm. I had to be here. And I liked that. I feel like they've lost sight of that. Yeah. I don't, I, know, I don't know if they're actually trying to make Chandris to be the next racial leader of the Night Elves. I don't know the answer to that question. I keep saying that today. I will say that it does feel like she's being put into a more prominent position, and Maiev was too. And I hope that they keep that going with Maiev. I would like it if I would like it if Toronto stayed as leader, but if you had Maiev as Chandris as the right and left hands. Yeah, balancing her out, like or or yeah. because they, they each bring something different to the table. If uh, you need somebody to go forth and be your military leader, you get Chandris. If you need someone to get somebody like killed or assassinated or captured, you send Maiev. And the two of them are like there telling Tyrande, no, you, I get that you want to tell Danduin to eat dog poop, but we need them right now. You can't do that. They need to be, I, I almost feel like it would be better if they were, if instead of being led by Taronda, they were led by a triumvirate of those three. And Malfurion could go back to being in charge of the, of the Scenarian Circle and not a Night Elf leader because he is effing terrible at being a Night Elf leader. Yeah, he really is. Like, let him just be a druid and do druid things because, honestly, that's what you he's good neutral. at. You want to be neutral all the time. You want to have friends from other factions. You want to be best buddies with Hamul. Great. Hamul can't control his people. He has utterly failed at stopping them from doing a single awful thing to the world that they have done. Where was Hamul Rune Totem when they decided to turn Ashara into a horde symbol? Yeah, and and part of that problem is with Hamul as well. Like, and not to, to digress too far, but like it's that same thing with Malfurion. He tries to be too neutral. He doesn't like. We're past the point of having neutral leaders. Is what it really boils down to. Yeah, if you're not gonna, if you if you want to lead your people, lead them. Yes. Take responsibility rather, for them. If you'd rather lead a neutral faction that cares more about Azeroth as a whole, that's great. Do it. But then don't be showing up on Horde leadership councils and, and saying, you know, the Horde, I, I'm part of the Horde. No. 
You shouldn't be. And, and I know that there's going to be somebody out there that's going to argue, but, but you know, but he's not the leader of the Torn people. It's it's Bane that is. And while that's true, uh, Hamill has, like Matt has pointed out, shown up on all of those leadership councils, uh, has shown up as a spiritual leader or whatever you want to call it, but he's been present on the Horde side of things. Yeah, he's been the guy standing next to two Bloodhoof chieftains. Yeah. And, and then Bane. So and I'm I would sorry, be f- at some point you have to be responsible, but I don't want to get too distracted. We're probably getting the end of it, right? Yeah, we're, this is going to be the end of it, but I was just going to just to throw it out there. I would I would be perfectly fine with some of these leaders, uh, both factions starting to step back and go ahead and do their neutral thing. Like you're saying, like, go go lead the druids, go lead shaman, whatever, uh, and then set it up for people like in this particular case, Chandra's Feathermoon to take a more prominent role because I absolutely adore what they've been doing with her. I adore uh, how they've developed her as uh, a character. And like Matt pointed out, and this is something that I think is is oft overlooked, the fact that she can think in terms of the other races is such a huge thing, especially when you're talking about keeping the alliance together. Tyrande can't do that. Chandris can. She can talk to them on their terms and that makes it viable that makes her a a good person to interact with it's less what Tyrande has become which is what have you done for me today and oh you're not doing anything for me today it doesn't benefit me all right cool i'm out done whereas Shandris is trying to take the more measured approach looking at it from their perspectives and trying to see things through those other races eyes uh and understand like matt pointed out like understand their contributions that's what you need if the alliance is going to stay together yeah and- and with Shandris too it's not that she necessarily disagrees with anything Toronto's saying she just understands that you can't there's no benefit to alienating your allies yeah you may have to go do something they don't like, and that's fine. But if you actually make it antagonistic, it will be harder for you later when you need to ask for something else. Yeah. You can't, when half your people still live in Stormwind. Yeah, especially now. Like, with, with your people now seeking refuge, refuge there, uh, it's you don't want to look, look at a, a position or take a position that's going to jeopardize that. And. I understand that the, the for night elf players out there, I get your your pain. I understand your anger, but it's also one of those things where I think Shandris is doing the best job of you know understanding the current situation to the best of the the best of her ability and trying to steer the ship to the best course of action to keep everything going as best she can. And I think that's important. Uh, but I think that's uh, I think that's all we have time for. Unless there's anything else you want to add, Matt. I mean, I could probably talk about it for like half an hour, but we've got to both do other things. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Again, if you have questions for the show, be sure to send them in through our various Discord channels or through our email at podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Be sure to check out the show on such platforms as spotify now give us those listens we do appreciate it uh and we will see you next week
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.